You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our guest is a returning guest. Of course, we had to bring him back. Thomas Eddick, his book, Catching Your Breath in Grief. Uh, thank you very much for coming back. Oh, it's been a long trip, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I know your book has been really influential when we talk about grief. What stories are you hearing about your book from the readers? I had a wonderful story from a woman who um, was working in my church but had been a chaplain in a hospice. Uh, in Victoria, and uh, my book had been um, given to the hospice. A fellow who was running a local cemetery liked the book so much that he um, gave enough copies so that every family uh, with a dying uh, member uh, was given a copy of the book. And my friend who had served as chaplain at this hospice told me this story. She said one day she was walking down the hall and she overheard a conversation in a room. It sounded like several people were in there with this dying man. So she cracked the door of the room and looked around and there were several family members in there and they had a copy of my book in their hands and they were passing it from one family member to another each taking their turns, reading their favorite pages from the book aloud to one another. She said it was one of the most remarkable things she'd ever seen, and she just wanted me to know. And I I wish that were possible for lots and lots of families. This book is is really uh, an incredible contribution to the field of grief. In our last recording, we ended our recording when you're talking about using sorrow-friendly practices. Mm -hmm. And those were amazing practices. And now we're talking about, uh, let's talk about choosing life, especially when we are dealing with grief and trying, you know, to heal and recover back to normal. So choosing life, how do we choose life? Well, I I think... (laughs) I think it's pretty vital to do that. I think people can spiral down into places where it seems like they're not sure that they really want to live. And I, th- I think if we think back about that idea that there's a grace of the universe that is providing us with life support throughout our lifetimes, that is sending good things to us mm-hmm. um, that enable us to uh, to live through the hardest of life's conditions uh, and so on. If we think of the grace of the universe and all that it has made available and possible for us up to now, we recognize, I think, that there is a lot still worthy of our care uh, and love that um, it's worth sticking around for. We can sense that we are distant from others who are suffering in their own ways uh, and distant from the kind of loving connections that we would like to have. But we can also be aware that there are things to love and people to love uh, and, and care about deeply. And if I can get past this sorrow, it's going to be worth living for what remains. There are opportunities to stretch into something new. 
those things have always been coming our way through life mm -hmm. and they will continue. And I'm just curious enough, I want to stay alive to see what might come next because there have been other times in my life when things got pretty dark. Yeah. And then this amazing light comes. <laughs> and thank God I got through the dark. Yeah. And the light was there to be reached for. And I was got to a point where I could welcome it again. And I think there's a kind of very fundamental choosing to live in recognition of life as having given us so much. What makes us think it's stopping now? This is a bad bump in the road. This is a terrible time. This is hard. Uh, but by golly, I'm going to stick through this. I'm going to try to engage with my sorrow in a way that makes it less uh, and then see what's there. Uh, I, 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 there. There are a couple of little true things that I think are true about grieving that the idea of thinking of grieving as relearning how to live in the world capture and capture well that I want to highlight just right now. For some reason, I think in our culture, people think that grieving is something that we finish with. I don't think that we ever stop missing the person who has died, missing my father who died 40 years ago is part of my life. <laughs> right. yeah. I still miss him every once in a while. I, I wish I could just talk to him uh, and so on. And we never stop loving the people who have died. Uh, you can talk to uh, people 30, 40, 50, 60 years after a parent has died or a child has died or whatever, and they still have love. Now, if loving doesn't stop and missing doesn't stop, and those are both part of uh, grieving, then thinking of grieving as something that we finish with is wrong. And if mm. we think of grieving as relearning how to live in the world, I can ask this question of an audience. I'll ask it of you. Do you think you have finished learning how to live, Saul? No. No. Well, then do you think you're going to finish relearning how to live? No. no. You learn to carry your grief, and it does accumulate, but it doesn't necessarily become a heavier and heavier burden. It's just part of who you are. And I think in our lives, we are sort of on a course where we're sort of constantly expanding <laughs> until, we, until the bubble bursts. And in, in, the, in part three of your book, you talk about reweaving your life. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? Well, the way the weaving, um, let's put it this way. Um, I, I wrote another little thing a few years ago. It was about a dozen, a dozen good things about grieving. One of the things uh, that I had on that list is in grieving, we're relearning how to live in the world. And we are doing what we've been doing our entire lives, which is learning how to live in the world. This isn't new. We've been reweaving, uh, we've been weaving a pattern of daily life and of life with others our entire lives. Yeah. Now the, the grief has 
or the loss uh, has disrupted that process. But when you get to reweaving, you return to what you've been doing your whole life. Over, the, over your lifetime, your daily life pattern has changed. Well, you've had experience of changing your life pattern. That's what you're gonna have to do now. Um, the course that your life was taking, reaching into the future and so on, some of what you were gonna meet in the future was new and some of it would be familiar. Now you're gonna redirect the course of your life history You've been doing that your whole life and mm. now you have to do it again but unfortunately it starts in a deep sorrow but you've probably had deep sorrows previously as well <laughs> so True. it's not like it's a whole new program that you got to get with it's a, a returning to and sort of using the muscles you've already developed in your souls and spirits to reshape your daily life and re, uh, recharge and redirect uh, your life history. Does that make sense? It sounds simple, but it's not easy. Yes, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes just the work that it requires. Oh. It is work. It is effortful. And the idea that grieving is feelings coming over you and you kind of wait them out until they go away isn't what it's about. <laughs> it's <laughs> about doing the hard work of getting past this sorrow and getting to a point where you can carry the missing of this person, but you're not feeling every day the intense anguish, deep sorrow, uncontrollable tears or, or whatever it is, the worst of it, uh, you can work past. And the, the more effectively you re-engage with your life at your own pace, the more likely the intensity of your sorrows will diminish. Let's, let's say another thing about sorrows. Um, the first encounter with something that reminds you poignantly of this person having lived and not, not being dead, that's the worst. The second time will likely not be as intense. The 15th time will be kind of familiar and not as intense. The hundredth time you go past that same corner where you had this interesting conversation, you probably won't even cry. Mm. <laughs> it changes. It mm. lessens. And if you've listened to it well through sorrow-friendly practices, if there's something in your sorrow that keeps grabbing you and so on, the intensity can be lessened as well. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem and we continue our conversation with Thomas. Uh, in your book, you talk about, um, obviously, you know, the intensity of grief, but we have to learn to live on. Uh, you talk about loving in separation. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Well, I told you before that uh, we spend most of our time separated yes. from those that we love. So it's going to look like that in part. Mm. Um, I think 
remembering is the key. Yeah. And one of the things that no one can ever take from us after a person has died is the memories that we have of living with them. Uh, and some of the most precious uh, among those memories are, are kind of full stories of the time we did this, the time we experienced that, the time this happened and we struggled with it together or, or the like. And no one can take those stories away from us. And if we tell them and share them uh, with people in our friendship circle or our families uh, or whatever, uh, as is pretty common in lots of cultures where the stories of the elders are told again and again and again, Yes, um, there are an awful lot of people around me that I've talked to in in our, the culture that we we live in that that sort of want to put on put a line under a person's life and never talk about them again. What a waste! <laughs> you're, you're missing the possibility of sensing that these people still love you and that you are loving them in telling the stories of them and. Uh, reminding everybody of why it is that you found them so fascinating, so wonderful, so generous, so kind, uh, so marvelous, uh, such great teachers or whatever. So the memories are good, cultivating them, sharing them, recording them so that you don't lose, lose the details and so on. All of those are good things to do. But through memories, you wind up being in a position of identifying legacies that these persons have given to you that you still have. Dad taught me how to use a hammer. Mom taught me how to use a, a camera. My brother taught me how to hunt. My sister uh, taught me how to play tennis. Uh, things like that. Uh, skills that you've acquired, practical legacies. Uh, if it weren't for her, I don't think I could ever break an egg properly, <laughs> <You know? laughs> really, or, or make an omelet or make a smoothie or mm. whatever. Um, practical legacies are yours and no one can take them from you. There are ways in which you are different people because of these people who have died. Mm. Dad made me a, someone who was really capable of speaking honestly with his children. Mom made me understand what patience in friendship was all about. My sister taught me about struggling to overcome sorrow. I watched her wrestle with the death of her child and I learned powerful lessons about how to grieve, how to return to a life pattern that's meaningful again. We have deeper legacies of lessons of life that they've left us. If we look at ourselves and find ourselves being pretty good at doing this, we can ask ourselves, who taught me that? And lots of it will come back to, you know, that's grandpa. That's my friend, Bob. That's my cousin, Joni. That's mm. Martin Luther King. That's Muhammad Ali. That's President Carter. 
<laughs> so it's important to embrace legacies of our oh, yeah. dead loved and, ones. And when, when you embrace a legacy, you can feel loved again. And you can feel grateful. Uh, one of the things, uh, um, a man named um, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Grief Observed. This must be familiar to you. Yes. Uh, he was wondering if God was on his side or if God was experimenting with him when his wife died. He was angry at God and he felt the doors closing between him and his God and so on. And he woke up one morning and his sorrow was less intense than it had been for a long time. And all the blurred memories of his wife sort of came back to him in their fullness. It was almost like she's in the room with him is what he says. Toward the end of the book, he writes with the background of that anger at God and the deep sorrow that he was feeling. He said, I've noticed that um, if you praise someone, you feel good about them again. You feel connected to them again. You feel connected to the best in them again. Same with God. If you praise God, I can see that he gave me my wife. Can't be all bad if he does things like that. <laughs> so he winds up loving God in separation, as we all have to, uh, and uh, loving his wife. As the, the more he praises her, the less sorrow he feels, the more connected he feels. Let me, let me talk about another feature of this. In this world that we return to after a person has died, we're reminded of this person almost everywhere. In, in what you're eating for breakfast, uh, in uh, what it looks like uh, when you walk into uh, the living room, what it looks like when you come home and go through the door again, what it feels like to jump in the front seat of the car and turn the engine on, what it feels like to uh, go to your favorite restaurant or go to the theater or go to your church or go to a favorite place in the, in the town park or whatever. And the first time you go, you're reminded that they're not there and you yeah. feel this sadness. Go a few times and you can reach past the sadness to the memory of being there with him or her or doing something there with him or her. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I watched a fellow, they recorded him counseling with, with a woman whose son had died in his early 20s. And she'd been in counseling with him for several sessions. He had a box of Kleenex with him ready for her to come in and so on. He sits her down and he says, you know, last time uh, we agreed that you would bring something that your son gave to you uh, for our next session. That's, that's today. Did you do that? Yeah. Are you ready or do you want to wait a little while and then, then we can talk about it? I'm ready, she said. Well, could you, could you show it to me? So she gets her purse and she opens her purse and she starts crying and she grabs a Kleenex takes it out, it's kind of wrapped up. He said, could you unwrap it for me? Yes. So she unwraps it. It was a lovely something I can't even remember quite what it was, but you could hold it in the palm of your hand. Uh, and she's crying again. And he says, tell me about when he gave you that. Well, it was one of his, uh, one of her 
last birthdays before before he died, excuse me. Um, mm. And she starts telling about that occasion. Well, what was it like when you opened it the first time? Oh, I was so surprised. Oh, and he remembered this about what I really cared about. And this thing has a kind of a history to it. She shares some of that. Well, that, that day he gave it to you. Was it at a party for you? Yeah, there were several people there. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. Hmm. By the time she's done telling him about this object, she and he together are laughing hmm. uh, about how joyful that occasion was and so on. What happened? She reached past the initial sorrow of meeting up with this object again and connected with memories of how considerate he was to have thought of that gift for her because it was so appropriate and how delightful it was to have a son who cared that much and how nice it was to share that love with the other people who were there. She reached past the sorrow hmm. to the legacy of a memory that's a precious memory for her. And it came time to close the session. She said, that's what I have to do, isn't it? I have to relearn the world, right? I mean, my life is full of things like this. It's going to be hard to meet up with them. But if I'm patient, maybe I can reach through to what I still hold of his love in separation. She didn't, she didn't come back for counseling. <laughs> <laughs> what Does that a, make sense? <laughs> makes a lot of sense. What a powerful story. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Thomas. Talk to us about the role of resilience when it comes to grief. Uh, the companion story there is about brokenness. Mm. You experience a lot of brokenness and grief. Your life pattern is shattered and will not be what it was. Your life history is disrupted and will be going off on a different course than the one you anticipated. Your ego's defenses uh, and self-confidence uh, and so on are shattered and undermined. Um, there's a lot of brokenness in your life. Resilience is about what isn't broken. It's what is deep within you that enables you to contend with what is broken. Well, what isn't broken? The physical breath of life in you is not broken. It's been continuing through all of this sorrow. Your ego is still capable of being very practical. It's not capable of controlling everything, so it's got to be humbled. Right? Your soul is still capable of caring and loving deeply. Your spirit is still capable of hoping and struggling and overcoming 
and feeling joy and a sense of adventure. All of these things are not broken. If you believe in such a thing, your ties with the deity, God, are not broken. And your love for the person who has died is not broken. Hmm. You can draw upon all of those things as the strengths that will enable you to do the hard work of returning to the familiar and stretching into the new and learning to carry your sorrow and learning to love in separation that you are challenged to do in learning to live in the world in a meaningful way again. So it looks like we really need to dig deep into what is not broken to yeah. build resilience to help us to bounce back. Absolutely. In the last part of your book, you talk about continuing the dance. Uh -huh. What does that look like? Well, what I have in mind is uh, continuing the dance of life with mysteries. Your soul and spirit and the souls and spirits of others are deeper and more complex and multi-featured than we can fathom or comprehend. We're in a context permeated with ambiguity, uncertainty, finiteness, inevitable suffering. Um, the meaning of life is elusive, hard to get a firm grasp on. Um, Life itself is a mystery far more complex than we can grasp. The great scheme of things is beyond our uh, complete grasp. We dance with these mysteries. They are constantly revealing new meanings and the depths of who we are within us, we're constantly learning more about. And meaning in life is realized as we meaningful, we, the, the mysteries within us re respond meaningfully to the mysteries outside of us. And that's a kind of a dance. There's a rhythm of life. There's a give and take and a flow in this dance. And in grief, we get to a point where I think maybe in lots of cases anyway, people have a, a, a deeper understanding of their limitations but their, their strengths. We're up to that dance and we've been doing that dance all of our lives. And it's in that dance that we find meaning. When we return to it and continue to dance, our efforts have paid off. Thomas, I consider you one of the greatest minds in this field of grief. What are your final thoughts? I'm truly humbled when people find um, value in what I've managed to do and I one of my thoughts is gratitude to you thank you you you, you uh, this has been fun and and, and I, I love it when when sincere gratitude is is expressed and that's what I feel I think living a human life is full of real challenge and and loss of uh, a loved one through death is as hard as it gets, uh, it seems to me. But I'm constantly amazed at how 
we're wired to be able to do that. I mean, that yeah. we have the resilience that we have. Yeah. And that this world offers as much as it does. I remember I, we attended a church in California and there was a fellow who <laughs> was raising money. He wants people to, to give more money. And so I said, gratitude is the best attitude, gratitude. <laughs> I'm amazed in my own personal life, and I want to encourage other people to, as often as possible, think of all there is to be grateful for, including the lives of everyone you've ever known who has died. Be grateful for those lives. Find the way, explore the ways of being grateful for those lives and for those dear ones who've been part of your life support through your life, and you will live so much better. Great thoughts. How can our listeners get a hold of you and a hold of your book? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give them all my uh, email right now. It's uh, my first initial T and my last name, Attic, followed by the initial CA for Canada, I guess now. TAddictCA at gmail.com. Anyone should feel free to just send me a note. Do you have a um, website? I have a website. It's called griefsheart.com. Um, with no, no punctuation in grief's heart. It's just grief's heart, no apostrophe either. <laughs> Griefsheart.com. <laughs> it's available through Amazon, but it costs a lot. But if you're interested or anybody uh, who is able, there are, there are people who like to support churches and hospitals and, and, and so on. Uh, if there's a contributor or a donor, who might like to buy the books at um, cost plus shipping, have them contact me and we'll make arrangements. <laughs> All right. I'm the publisher. I'm the publisher. All right. <laughs> I really appreciate your time in the two episodes that we've had. And if you have not listened, I encourage you to listen to both episodes. Thomas's book is Catching Your Breath in Grief. Thank you very much for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.